We had a conversation um, recently, Debbie and I, with some other folks. We were talking about our, our childhood days, our parents, how they parented, and just trying to figure out how, you know, Debbie thought this, I thought this. How did we land uh, with putting our faith in Christ? Because both our parents really never talked to us much about the Lord. They, you know, or about your life, about your future. Um, it it kind of felt like we were on our own, but we, we both kind of landed on this same thought that we, we watched our parents. They weren't perfect, but they were consistent in their faith. And the second thing was they were always in church. Back in the day, we had church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday, at least. And we were there. And we always knew we'd be there. You know, there was never, a, there was never any question. There was never any doubt in your mind. You were in church. And uh, we were just talking about the value of being consistent in church, man. You know? Listen, we're not talking about religion. You know, you're going to church, you're going to make God love you more, and you know, you get more brownie points, you get a bigger ribbon in heaven because you were in church. No, that's not why we're talking about that. It's because, one, um, you want to hang out with God and his people. And in this day, we need that to happen more than ever, right? You bet, man. You bet. And so uh, you've heard me say this before. There are Christians today who are downplaying the value of being in church. And let me tell you something. They're being robbed, man. They're, they are deceived. If you're watching online and you're thinking that, you're deceived, man. Because when you read through the New Testament, you'll see that Jesus is preparing his church for a great wedding day. He's the bridegroom, we're the bride, the church. Listen, if, if that wasn't important to him, he wouldn't have put that in the Bible. Among many other things, lifting up the church, the family of, of God, the body of Christ, which you're a part of. So let me, that was just a word of encouragement. <laughs> word of encouragement, man. Yes, indeed. So, um, did I tell you you have your outlines there? <laughs> kind of went off the trail there, but we came back and we are continuing our series on um, the book of Philippians, the joy project. I've got to tell you, man, I, I was thinking about this. By the time we get finished with Philippians, I'd like to start over again. I love it. I love this letter. I, I love reading it. I love studying it. And it's, it's really encouraged me. And so, um, <laughs> so we'll see. But it's on my mind, and uh, I'm just being transparent with you. Uh, so that's that. We're going back in time, August 1944. It was called one of the greatest rescue missions of that war. Um, August through December 1944, American bombers were sent on a dangerous mission over southern Europe to uh, cripple the Nazis' oil supplies, the petroleum refineries, just trying to uh, 
they were trying to shorten the war because of that. And, because, and so this is what happened. Hundreds of crews flying, bombers soared through the storms of anti-aircraft shells. Uh, it's called flak. Uh, if you've been in the military, flak. They shoot metal up into the air and, and hopefully a plane will fly into it and destroy the plane. Well, because of this flak, many pilots and their crews were forced to bail out of their shot-up planes, and the engineermen drifted by parachute, in this particular case, into occupied Yugoslavia. And they were expecting, as they were floating in those parachutes, to be either captured or killed by the Nazis. But that didn't happen, and there's a reason for it. Because on the ground, there were rescue teams already in place. Serbian peasants tracked the path of these parachutes, their crews. Their sole mission at that time was to, to grab the crews and bring them to safety before the Nazis arrived to capture them. These um, Serbian peasants put their lives on the line. Uh, they fed, they sheltered these downed crews, the, these rescued men fell into friendly hands on enemy soil. Think about that. And then here's the deal. They still needed to escape from Yugoslavia. And the story became known as the Operation Hayler builds, uh, it's really a daring mission, uh, a secret landing strip, a secret evacuation plan. And amazingly, the Serbian peasants rescued every single American airman, over 500 in all, during the course of these bombing raids. That's quite incredible. The fascinating subplot to rescue these downed crews, they had a, uh, the Americans had to go through an evacuation site, spend weeks with the Serbian freedom fighters, they were the only ones who knew the way to the evacuation site. So there were language problems. They didn't know where to go, the direction. They didn't have GPSs, the pace, the destination. They were in the hands of their rescuers. The men had been saved from their enemy, but the journey had just begun. Why? Because they still had to walk to freedom a free country. And so the story of Operation Halard sheds really an important light on our spiritual reality that you and I have. To be rescued from something sets us on a path towards something. For the airmen, it was a journey for survival. For us, it's a journey of faith. The one who saved us is now calling us to walk with him. It's not negotiable. It isn't. Though snatched from spiritual death, we soon discover that the Christian life isn't an arrival. It's an adventure. Christ rescues us, then points us to the path of following him for the rest of our lives. And so with that, let's go to the book of Philippians chapter 3. And uh, in your outline, you see it's verses 10 and 11. Uh, we're going to just back up to verse 7, put a little context on it. Paul writing this letter 
uh, under house arrest. I once thought these things were valuable, talking about his religious heritage. Um, But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I can gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ. Here it is. And experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. When we look at Operation Halard back in World War II, the point was they were rescued by rescuers in Yugoslavia, but they needed to get out of that country because the Nazis occupied that country. And if they were caught, they would be either killed or put in POW camps. There was still an evacuation that needed to happen. And friends, even though we have been rescued spiritually by putting our faith in Jesus Christ, we have to live this thing out until the last breath that we have or until Jesus comes. You see, we can't stay in Yugoslavia with with these freedom fighters. We need to get back and continue on in this walk and journey that we call life. And that's a process. That's the point that Paul is making in these two verses. That even though he has been living for Christ for 30 years, he's not saying, I've arrived, you know? Man, I, I'm, uh, I'm putting it on cruise control. I've, I've done my duty, and I'm going to chill. No. Even after 30 years, man, there's something going on the inside of him that he needs to pursue Christ. And so we see that Paul gives us his life mission and his desire. And despite all of his qualifications that were so important to him earlier, you know, being so religious, being a good Pharisee, man, he said it's all garbage when I compared to what Jesus Christ has done for me. So number one in your notes, I choose Christ. And this morning... You need to know that every single one of us have a decision to make. Uh, Quite honestly, uh, even if you put your faith in Christ, you have a decision to make every single day. Am I going to pursue Christ today or am I just going to coast? Or I'm going to reject Jesus again today. I've been doing it my whole life. I don't want anything to do with him. Um, we all have a decision to make. So right off the top, Paul is laying it out for you and me. He was writing to the church at Philippi and basically saying the same thing. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, 
sharing in his death so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Here's a dude that's under house arrest because he has lived for Jesus Christ. And instead of becoming bitter and angry at God, that God took him out of commission, so to speak, he's locked up in a house somewhere. He's not going anywhere soon. He's saying, I want to know Christ. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. So, it's kind of a confession because Paul already knew Christ. See that? He already knew him, but he wanted to know him more. Before we, we go farther, we can hit the pause button because Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Maybe some of you watching or here this morning could identify with this group of people. Paul writes, Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. I had to talk as though you belonged to this world or as though you were infants in Christ. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger. And you still aren't ready, for you are still controlled by your sinful nature. You are jealous of one another and quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove that you're controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like people of the world? This letter is not going to the general public. This is not an editorial in the local newspaper. This is a letter to the church. People who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. And yet Paul is writing, he says, I can't talk to you. I can't even write to you as spiritual people. You get, you've, you're, you're compromised. That's really what he's saying. You've been compromised. You should be maturing in your walk. You should be growing in that relationship with Christ, but instead you're going backwards. He's saying you're still being controlled by your sinful nature. That's unfortunate. And so we need to choose that, you know, if we're going to grow in our walk with Christ or we're going to choose to go stale. We're going to go mediocre. On the flip side to that, Jonathan Edwards was an intellectual genius entering Yale University when he was 12 years old. In fact, he is buried at Princeton University where he served as president until his death in 1758. He inspired countless missionaries to go overseas, to go all in with God, with their lives. And it was Jonathan Edwards who sparked the America's first great awakening during the 1730s and 40s. Really, awakening the English colonies that had allowed religion to, to take the life out of them spiritually. And God fanned the flame in those early colonies, man, where people began to pursue that relationship with Christ and to keep it rolling, vibrant, healthy. And so, but his legacy... His family tree, children, grandchildren, etc., 
pretty impressive. For example, they include more than 300 pastors and missionaries, 120 university professors, 60 authors, 30 judges, 14 college presidents, three members of Congress, and one vice president. You say it's pretty impressive, right? It sure is. But that legacy, just like every spiritual genealogy, traces back to a defining moment. A defining moment. For Jonathan Edwards, it was on January 12, 1723. He was 20 years old. And he wrote this in his diary. Not only did he write it in his diary, but he went back to his diary over his life to reread what his commitment was with Christ. I made a solemn dedication of myself to God and wrote it down, giving up myself and all that I had to God. To be for the future in no respect my own, to act as one that had no right to himself in any respect. And solemnly vowed to take God for my whole portion and joy, looking on nothing else as any part of my happiness, nor acting as if it were. For Jonathan Edwards, that was the tipping point. That was the line in the sand that he lived his life, not for the next decade, but for the rest of his life, on fire for God. Jonathan Edwards chose, he made that decision to live for Christ, and you and I have that same opportunity, don't we? We sure do. When we make that decision, we're dethroning ourselves from ruling and running our lives and saying, Jesus, you run it. You're in control. It's really giving God veto power. He can overrule anything that we desire to do. It's an ever-deepening love for Christ. It's an ever-deepening love for Christ. Mark Batterson, pastors in Washington, D.C., he wrote this. My greatest concern as a pastor is that people can go to church every week of their lives and never go all in with Jesus Christ. I'm afraid we've cheapened the gospel by allowing people to stay safely on the sidelines. We've given people just enough Jesus to be bored, but not enough to feel the surge of holy adrenaline that courses through your veins when you decide to follow him. You cannot be in the presence of God and be bored at the same time. I thought about that. Um, Jay Sigurd kind of hit that last week, didn't he? We teach a boring message. That's, that's a sin. <laughs> Man, if, if people are presenting the Bible as boring, something's not right. I was thinking about this, too, for me, myself. I, I've been in those moments in the presence of God. And I'm not bored. For that matter, you cannot be in the will of God and be bored at the same time. The choice is yours. Pursue Christ or boredom. If you don't go after Jesus, you'll get bored. You want to know why Christianity is failing in America today? 
because religion has sucked the life out of people that say they're followers of Jesus Christ. It's become a ritual. It's going through the motions, man. Why are young people abandoning their faith? They don't see it happening in their home. Your children need to see you as a father and a mother passionately pursuing Jesus and enjoying that relationship consistently. We're not talking about perfection, man. We're talking about living for him, modeling him, and letting our children say, when I, when I grow up, <laughs> I want to be like my dad. I want to be like my mom. Boom! <laughs> my gum, man, it just jumped out. <laughs> Careful. Good thing I don't have dentures, man. They'd be on the ground. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, man. I, I, our children need to see it happening in our home. And hopefully they don't have to wait till they grow up, man. They can do it when they're children and teenagers. They see their mom and dad on go for God, and they are, they're on go for God. Yeah. So, Mark continues, The longer I follow Jesus, the more convinced I am of the simple truth. Stay humble. Stay hungry. If you aren't hungry for God, you are full of yourself. But if you will empty yourself, if you will die to self, you'll be a different person. You will be his story through your life. George Barna has a research um, ministry. They, they routinely go through America uh, finding the pulse of a, the spiritual temperature of the country. And this is what they came up with. Nearly 72% of churches don't look to the Bible as their final source of authority and direction. No wonder America's crumbling. You know what that means? 72% of churches don't look to the Bible. That means a lot of followers of Christ are not looking to the Bible as their final authority and direction. Friend, how about you? Where do you land? Is the Bible it? Hmm. Number two, know him. Verse 10a, Paul says, I want to know him. I want to know him. This slide, uh, maybe we should put that on our refrigerators, you know, in the morning. 
It's a reminder for the day. I want to know him. I want to know him. And Paul, once again, is going back. He's rewinding the tape of his life 30 years to that road, Damascus Road experience when Jesus got his attention. And he continues here describing his life after conversion. Even 30 years later, I was thinking about that, man. Um, I've been following Christ for a long time, but I want to know him more. I'm not content. I get encouragement from Dave Ogren. He's older than me. I won't say how much, but uh, actually I'm quite younger than he is. But we, we challenge each other spiritually, man, you know. This is what God's been saying to me, and this is what God's been saying to me, you know. We need people around us to do that, right? We do. So Paul reminds us of the priority he's made in his life, just like Jonathan Edwards made that commitment when he was 20 years old. Have you made that commitment? I'm going to follow Christ passionately, fully, totally. Or are you on the sidelines? Paul Nitza, he was a former U.S. Deputy Secretary of Defense, put it this way, one of the most dangerous forms of human error is forgetting what one is trying to achieve. We lose focus, we get sidetracked, we, we allow life to beat us up. I recently uh, heard from a friend that uh, a pastor's wife had to deal with cancer and, and he, they went to the doctors and she was prayed for and finally she passed away and they had three children. And shortly thereafter, the, the father, the husband, bailed on God, walked away from God because he thought life isn't fair. You see? And so his two sons have walked away from God. And the daughter is the only one that stayed faithful. You see, we have to come to that point where Paul, man, we could talk about everything he went through once he put his faith in Christ, which would cause many of us to say, I don't want to do that. Paul says, I want to know Christ. I want to know him. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians today see the gospel as a get-out-of-hell free card. You know? They, they put their faith in Christ. It's going to keep me out of hell. And then they just go about their lives like nothing's changed. But saving us 
from our sins, Jesus does give us access to heaven, but the gospel promises so much more, doesn't it? Than a pleasant place to spend eternity. It's more than that. It promises us Jesus in the here and the now. He rescued us and he is our great reward. A.W. Tozer said, the man who would truly know God must give time to him. Give him time. We saw earlier, well, Paul talking about knowing Christ in verse 8. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Savior. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so I could gain Christ and become one with him. If Paul already knows Christ, why does he want to know him when he already knows him? <laughs> huh? You ever think about that? It's a simple answer. He wants to know him more. He wants to know him more. He wants to have more of an intimate relationship. He wants to continue to follow his teaching and draw closer to Christ. Uh -huh. uh, Lehman Strauss put it this way, there is nothing shallow or superficial about the man who has set such knowledge as his goal in life. Knowledge about Christ received from reading a book or listening to a sermon could not satisfy the individual in search of such a holy quest. Conformity to Christ is his God, and he refuses to stop short of it. There you have it. This is a personal relationship with Christ. Christianity is not a religion. All the other religions, it's not about a relationship. Christianity alone, it's all about a relationship with Christ. To know, that word known in the Greek, to know by experience, knowledge gained through personal experience and intimate companionship. Knowing Christ in verse 8, in the Greek, Paul takes that same root word and goes deeper with it, where it's, it's referring to intimacy, like intimacy with a husband and a wife. He's drilling down here. To know, to know Christ intimately. Debbie and I recently celebrated our 44th wedding anniversary. And uh, uh, when she was in the hospital for 17 days, um, we hardly talked. Couldn't, really. And when she came home, we, talked, we had a discussion about that. And, and um, um, he said, you know, I know you love me. And I love you. And there's a trust there. I don't have to question it. I don't have to doubt we, we, I, I thought I loved her when I married her, even when I was dating her. I look back and it was a, a lot of infatuation probably, you know. And, and we, we, we talked about this too. Back then they didn't have 
uh, marriage, pre-marriage counseling, you know. And so I remember on our wedding day thinking, and they lived happily ever after. <laughs> she thought the same thing, man. And during the course, we find out, man, it's, uh, we live in a broken world and we're broken. And, you know, you have ups and downs along the way. And after 44 years, there, is, there has been maturity. There's been a maturation in our love. It has grown and so it's not where at 44 years we just hit the pause button and say, I know you enough. We're good. Will that relationship stay healthy? No. No. Got to keep it going, man. Invest in it. Spend time. That's what Paul's talking about here. So many Christians, man, have hit the, I'm good. I've been doing this long enough. I'm good. I, I can stop going after God. I'm good. Yeah. No, you're not. When you stop growing, you start coasting away from God. And that's a dangerous place to be. Craig Groeschel is a pastor, author. He talks about growing up in the church. And he said his parents would take him every Easter and Christmas. <laughs> and they had this big, oversized gold Bible uh, on the coffee table that nobody ever opened. And he said, when I was, in, uh, was a junior in, my, in high school, uh, my church youth group voted me to be the youth president. Uh, and he said it had nothing to do with living as a Christian. But he said, during that one-year term, it actually, I earned a partial scholarship to a Christian university. So keep this in mind. He's going to a Christian university now. He's in his second year. He says, sin is fun, at least for a while. But it never fails to come back to haunt you, usually when you least expect that like a sneeze, sin feels good at first, but it leaves a huge mess. By my second year in college, several of my fraternity brothers got busted for grand larceny, putting our whole fraternity at risk of being kicked off campus. He said, man, I felt pretty low there, and I decided to look towards God again. See, this is Christians, man, how they play the game. Get in trouble, they call on God. When they're good, they let God go. So he said, I decided to start a Bible study in our fraternity house thought it would help our reputation. And on that first Tuesday night, we started reading the Bible. We were a bunch of guys who believed in God, but didn't have a clue who God really was. You see that? We believed in God, but we didn't have a clue who God was. Although we didn't know what we were doing, our little Bible study started to grow. Apparently, many of our party friends bore a similar spiritual curiosity. The more Bible we read, the more prayers we prayed, the more people showed up and more God seemed to do. Midway through the, going through the New Testament, we were in the Romans, and I, I got so excited about the Bible, I started reading ahead. Got into the book of Ephesians, she said. 
encounter two verses that radically changed my life. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not for yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that nobody can boast. Could this be true? We're saved by God's grace and his grace alone. It's, it's not by works. Why didn't anybody tell me? See? He went to church. He's at a Christian university. I felt like a caged animal. I had to escape that tiny room. Someone was sitting in front of the only door, so I slipped out of the closet window and dropped to the ground. Sensing something important, I dashed to a nearby softball field, needing to be alone with God. What happened next is hard to explain and even harder for me to believe. The presence of God became real to me. Kneeling on that grass, I heard a voice. It was audible. It wasn't audible. It was actually way too loud to be audible, too present inside me. God said, without me, you have nothing. With me, you have everything. I knelt and I prayed the shortest, most power-packed, faith-filled prayer of my life. Not so much whispering as mouthing the words I said to God, take my life. Kind of like Jonathan Edwards. That was it. I had knelt down in the field as one person. I stood up as a completely different person. I had the same body, the same voice, and the same mind, but I wasn't the same. I'd later learned that I'd become what the Bible calls a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. The old was gone, the new has come. I was finally transformed from a Christian atheist into a Christian. And for the first time in my life, I believed in God and began to live like he was real. I want to submit this question to you, and I'd appreciate, you don't have to answer it out loud, but please answer it honestly. Was there a time in your life that you were closer to God than you are today? So often like a tiny leak in a tire, slowly our spiritual passion slips away. Instead of a fully devoted follower of Christ, we've really unintentionally become a part-time follower of Christ. Yeah. We believe in God, but our lives really don't reflect who he is. Henry Blackaby wrote, you can't go with God and stay where you are, friend. Craig concludes, there are those people who know God intimately and serve him with their whole hearts. For me, I know this is happening when I becoming increasingly aware of God's presence within me, his provision, his power, and his peace. I don't feel like God's out there somewhere. It's more like an ongoing conversation that we have throughout the day. And I honestly believe God speaks to me through his written word and by his Holy Spirit. And yet at other times, God doesn't feel as close, but by faith I know he is with me no matter what I feel 
I hold the assurance that God never leaves me and he never will. Let's go back to that question. Was there a time in your life that you were closer to God than you are today? What's happened? What's happened? Maybe we should land with Paul once again. Paul. 